World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In 1981, Mauritania banned forced labor. Officially, slavery was illegal in every country in the world. In reality, however, the practice never fully ended, and a new report suggests, sadly, that forced labor and marriage are growing more common. And Frank Drake spent decades searching for extraterrestrial life. Not finding it did little to blunt his confidence that it existed. Our obituaries editor reflects on why his belief remained unshaken. First up, though. Central banks in many countries are grappling with high rates of inflation. In America, consumers are seeing their living standards squeezed. Your grocery items, the cost of uh, dairy, meats, proteins um, have, have gone up. Originally, I would use like Uber and a taxi to get around, um, and I would have my own car at times. But because of the inflation, I would tend to use public transportation, ride my bike, or get a ride from a friend or family member more frequently. America's central bank, the Federal Reserve, has vowed to do whatever is necessary to bring rising prices under control. But soaring inflation continues to test the bank's resolve. After two large three-quarter percentage point increases in the Fed's interest rate over the summer, yesterday we saw the latest indication of whether the bank remains true to its word. My colleagues and I are acutely aware that high inflation imposes significant hardship as it erodes purchasing power especially for those least able to meet the higher costs of essentials, like food, housing, and transportation. We are highly attentive to the risks that high inflation poses to both sides of our mandate, and we are strongly committed to returning inflation to our 2% objective. The Fed raised interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point. It's the third consecutive meeting at which it's done that. Simon Rabinovich is our U.S. economics editor. It takes the Fed's key policy rate to its highest level since 2008. More than that, though, it means that we've had three full percentage points of interest rate increases since March in a a six-month period that is the sharpest monetary tightening that the Fed has delivered since the early 1980s. It really shows that after a relatively slow start uh, in terms of facing up to the dangers of inflation, the Fed is determined to try to control prices The chairman of the Fed, Jerome Powell, gave this reasoning for the increase. Inflation, what we hear from people when we meet with them is that that they really are suffering from inflation. And if we want to set ourselves up, really, really light the way to another period of a very strong labor market, we have got to get inflation behind us. I wish there were a, a painless way to do that. There isn't. 
So what we need to do is get rates up to, to the point where we're play, putting meaningful downward pressure on inflation. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing. And, um, we- and it's always been clear that there's a trade-off between getting inflation down and, and what that means for the employment market. And Chairman Powell made very clear that there would be pain to come. There would be job losses to come. So the rationale for these big rate rises is that they're a way to bring inflation under control. How is that fight going? Well, it's been a long, hard slog so far. In year-on-year terms, U.S. inflation did peak back in June at 9.1%. But last month, it was still running at 8.3%. And in fact, if you strip out volatile food and energy costs, the underlying core rate of inflation as an annualized rate, that would be 7.4%, bearing in mind that the Fed's target is to roughly have inflation at 2%. That just gives you some measure of how far away they are from achieving their targets of controlling prices. So the rate rises aren't bringing inflation under control yet. What what about the effects on, on other parts of the economy? So rate rises, and not just the rate rises that we've seen so far, but the expectations of continued rate increases are having a real impact on financial conditions. I think the area where we've seen The biggest impact has predictably been in areas that are most sensitive to central bank set interest rates. If you look at 30-year fixed mortgage rates, which are sort of a benchmark for the American property market, last year at this time, they were less than 3%. Today, you're looking at north of 6%, and that's having a real impact on the property market. Uh, Home sales have been falling for several months now. The most recent data indicates that the median sales price for new homes has begun to decline as well. And of course, it's having an impact on investor sentiment as well. The stock market is down on the year. Since the the latest inflation figures, the S&P 500 index, the benchmark stock market index in America, is down by about 5%. That's its biggest plunge since early months of the pandemic. So investors are clearly worried that inflation is not slowing more quickly and therefore Uh, that the Fed is going to have to bring rates up even higher uh, and faster than they had previously expected. And of course, the risk of doing that, especially if it comes with significant job losses, is that it tips the economy into recession. Do you think the American economy looks robust enough to to withstand that threat? Well, it's a live debate among economists, and it's evenly split. The basic view is that to slow inflation when it's so far above trend, you're going to have to have below-trend growth in America. If you assume that America's economy's potential is more or less to be growing at about 2% every year, growth has to come below that for inflation to begin to get under control. This year, the Fed's projection is that growth will be well below that, will be about 0.2%. It expects growth of closer to 1% next year. So its belief is that you'll be able to get that below-trend growth without an outright contraction. Some economists believe that is the case, but there are many who believe that's overly optimistic, that to bring inflation down, you're going to have to have ultimately greater balance in the labor market, which means more people losing their jobs, fewer employers trying to hire lots of people. I mean, right now, as it stands, there's still roughly two open jobs for every unemployed person in America. That's putting a lot of upward pressure on wages, uh, which ultimately leads to upward pressure on inflation. So if you want to have inflation getting under control, you need to have that upward pressure turning to, if not downward pressure, 
at least an absence of upward pressure on wages, which means not just slower job growth, but maybe even job destruction, maybe even a contraction in outright growth. For the time being, as Jerome Powell said, the labor market still is very resilient. So Simon, what's the Fed's projection for how high rates could go? So its projection is that interest rates will reach 4.4% by the end of this year. That's quite a big shift. As recently as three months ago, it had expected that rates by the end of this year would be 3.4%. So it's a full extra percentage point, which in Fed terms is quite a seismic shift. And then it it certainly projects that rates will continue to rise next year, uh, potentially peaking at about 4.6%. Many commentators and economists think the Fed will have to do a fair bit more than that. Economists at Deutsche Bank, for example, see the policy rate going up to around 5%. The basic point here that Jerome Powell made several times is that this is not the Fed saying that rates will go to 4.6%. This is its basic projection of where they'll be. It'll depend on the data that comes in. The Fed itself is very uncertain from meeting to meeting what the inflation data is going to be like. It was really quite a spectacle to look at the way that the market reacted to yesterday's rate increase as Chairman Powell spoke. Before they announced the rate increase, the S&P 500 was up by about 1%. When they announced it, it fell by a percent. It then rose by another percent. It then closed down closer to 2%. So it was up and down, up and down. There's always a fair degree of market choppiness, but to have this degree of volatility as the Fed announcement came out and as Jerome Powell spoke, is just an indicator of just how much uncertainty there is right now about the future course of Fed actions. They're very clear that they will do what it takes to get inflation under control, but precisely what it's going to take uh, is unknown to markets and unknown to the Fed itself. And it's not just unknown to the Fed itself, right? It's, it's, It's a choppy situation for central banks around the world. Other banks and big Western economies are also raising interest rates. Can you talk a bit about the connection between those rate rises? How does what the Fed is doing look in the rest of the world? And how do the actions of other central banks play into the Fed's considerations? Right. So to step back for a second, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that right now the Fed is part of a broad global trend of tightening. You know, in the UK, the Bank of England has followed the Fed by raising interest rates aggressively a half percentage point at its last meeting, and it is very likely to to continue into next year. The European Central Bank also made an unprecedented three-quarter percent increase earlier this month. So it's happening around the world. The obvious commonality is that inflation is a global phenomenon. There is another element, which is that because the Fed has been so aggressive, that has contributed to dollar strength. The dollar is, in global terms, basically at a 20-year high right now. That, for economies around the world, is pushing up the cost of commodity imports, uh, which are generally priced in dollars, which is then feeding into their import-based inflation as well. So there's a, a real pressure on central banks to more or less keep up with the Fed to ensure that their currencies don't weaken too much relative to the dollar. So it's really become something of a global phenomenon. I mean, there's even concern now amongst some economists that all of these central banks are hopping on the tightening bandwagon at at the same time. And there's a risk that the cumulative impact of all of that action is going to be a much steeper global recession than otherwise really needs to be the case, uh, and that it might be emerging markets that really bear the brunt. 
So, I mean, these are big, weighty steps. Obviously, the Fed's primary concern is what it has to do to get inflation in America under control. Uh, But what it's doing in America has significant global ramifications. And uh, I'm afraid that the bad news is that the longer it takes to get inflation under control, the higher rates have to go in America, the more pain that will be for America and for the global economy as a whole. All right, Simon, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Officially, slavery ended in 1981, when Mauritania became the last country to ban forced labor. In reality, it remains all too common. There are new rules set to be announced in Brussels this Tuesday to ban products made by forced labour. Last week, the European Commission proposed a blanket ban on goods made with forced labour. To some, this may seem unnecessary, but a new report proves just how prevalent the practice still is around the world. So slavery is still very common in the modern world. On any given day, at least 49 million people are in modern slavery, according to a new report by the UN and a charity called Walk Free. Amy Hawkins is a news editor at The Economist. The report defines modern slavery as people who are either in forced labour or forced to marry. And these kind of issues sometimes seem like a problem confined to the world's poorest countries. But the authors of the report reckon actually more than half of the incidents of forced labour last year happened in what the World Bank defines as upper-middle or high-income countries. And what are some of those countries? So the researchers interviewed about 78,000 people from 68 different countries, and they found that the majority of incidents of forced labour happened in the Asia-Pacific region. But as a proportion of the population, Arab states were actually the worst offenders, with an equivalent of 1% of their populations enslaved. And this already grim situation is getting worse. That is quite grim. How is it getting worse? So between 2016, when they last collected data, and 2021, an additional 2.7 million people were found to have been working in forced labour, taking the total to nearly 28 million. And more than 3 million of those people were children, although the data shows that those numbers have been falling. And then the other side of the equation is forced marriages, and they increased by 6.6 million over the same period to a total of 22 million. And that still might be an undercount because respondents were asked if they consented to their marriage. And so people who are forced into a relationship but later consented would not be counted in the data. Another surprising finding from the data is that while women and girls made up the biggest share of forced marriages, around one third of people coerced into wedlock were male. Does the report give any indication of why it seems to be getting worse? Well, one explanation could be the COVID-19 lockdowns, because the most common way in which people are forced into work is when employers refuse to pay their wages. And so as many people's incomes were decimated by the lockdowns, it was easier to exploit that vulnerability. 
and also in wealthier countries, sectors such as agriculture, construction and domestic work and fishing were found to have the highest rates of forced labour and the private sector accounted for the majority of those cases. So now that lockdowns are uncommon, are things improving at all? In some places, such as Qatar, the government has introduced reforms to try and crack down on this kind of exploitation. But of course, the success of those reforms will depend on whether or not laws are actually enforced. And that only helps workers who are officially recognised. For workers in the shadow economy or people compelled into the sex trade, they may not benefit from legislative changes. So governments will have to do more than just introduce new laws to try and ensure that the plague of modern slavery doesn't spread. All right, Amy, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. If you like The Intelligence, please rate us on your podcast app. And if you like The Economist, sign up for Economist Education's six-week online course on business writing and storytelling. Learn to write with clarity, punch, and pith, and gain the tools to become a more effective business communicator. The course is designed by many of the journalists you hear on the show. Register now and enjoy a 15% discount as a listener to The Intelligence. Go to economist.com slash writing course and use the discount code intelligence at checkout. For centuries and probably for millennia, a great mystery has vexed mankind. Are human beings alone in the universe? Or are there other intelligences out there with whom one day we might make contact? Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. This great question particularly intrigued Frank Drake. And from a very early age, he remembered that when his parents used to take him to Sunday school, he would be rather annoyed that everybody seemed to think their own world was the only one worth thinking about. What was happening around the other stars? Were there planets and were there intelligent people on those planets, as there were on Earth? Every time he looked up at the sky full of stars, he pondered this question. And gradually, these interests and obsessions drew him towards astronomy. He began as a physics engineer, but he became more and more interested when he went to Harvard with the whole world of the cosmos. And eventually, he went to work as a radio astronomer at the Greenbank Telescope in West Virginia, the National Observatory. In 1961, he decided that he would convene a conference of all the people in the world, as he thought of it, who were interested in finding intelligent life. He reckoned that might be only about 12 people, but he invited them to Greenbank. They were some of the most illustrious scientists of the time and they were going to debate the whole question and throw out ideas. And while he was drawing up a list of topics for the conference, he suddenly thought that if he could reduce the topics to an equation or a set of terms, it would look more seriously scientific, because the problem with this whole realm of seeking for extraterrestrial intelligence was that it was widely mocked as a search for little green men or aliens traveling in spaceships. 
and he wanted to prove that it was really a serious pursuit and well worth mankind's time to be getting on with. So he wrote out the equation. N equals R star times F sub P times N sub E times F sub L times F sub I times F sub C times L. We start with the rate of star creation in our galaxy, the Milky Way. R star times the fraction of those stars that have planets. Times F sub P. Then times the average number of planets that might support life. Times N sub E. Then the fraction of those that actually develop life. Times F sub L. Then the fraction of those that develop intelligent life. Times F sub I then times the fraction of those that reveal their existence by releasing signals into space. Times F sub C times L. If we multiply all these factors together and take our best guesses, and in some cases they really are guesses, particularly with respect to the longevity, we get an estimate of the number of detectable civilizations. Well, a reasonable number is 10,000. Now that's a lot, and that's very exciting. We might be able to learn of 10,000 civilizations if we did the right thing. And that is what motivates us to continue our search. It wasn't really an equation when you looked at it, and he admitted as much. It was really a thinking tool. It was a way of saying, here are all the things that must come together in order to create the same potential for intelligent life as there is on the Earth. And fairly soon after the conference, he set up the first experiments to search intensively for life elsewhere. And this was a project that was eventually called the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or SETI for short. The very first experiment they conducted was extremely exciting because they suddenly detected a pulse coming from one of the stars eight pulses a second, which seemed to have no explanation. They were wildly excited by this, but found out in a short time that it was actually rogue radar from a passing aircraft. He'd managed to see, by the early 2000s, only about a few thousand stars, where really he needed to have seen 10 million, he reckoned. But he continued... However, the American Congress was not quite so keen on all this activity, which seemed to be going nowhere. And in 1993, the funding was stopped. And this was terrible for him because, in fact, he needed far bigger and better telescopes scanning the sky the whole time on opposite sides of the Earth to have had any chance of detecting a few that might have life on them or even one that might have life. To the end, he was always optimistic about it. He didn't get cast down. And he kept looking all the time at these two stars, Tau Ceti and Epsilon Eridani. He had his greatest hopes pinned on those. And he compared his gazing on those to buying two tickets for the lottery. Because if man was to discover that there were intelligences elsewhere, it would not only curb humankind's arrogance... 
It would teach them new technologies, new ways of seeing, and even, he thought, new sources of joy. It would be the biggest imaginable jackpot. And someone, somewhere, had to win it. Anne Rowe on Frank Drake, who has died at the age of 92. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com and you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.